Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back up to uh, the book of Joshua, and let's continue our study at the, of the book of Joshua. Um, just a somewhat of a brief text this morning, a couple of few verses out of two chapters. You follow, first of all, in um, chapter 18, Joshua chapter 18. I'll read three verses, the first three verses of Joshua 18 and the last two verses of Joshua 19. Here we go. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? And then to chapter 19, last two verses. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Sirah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, that is something that endures forever. Hey, guys, I want to begin this morning with just a bit, just a brief little bit of of a geography lesson. I know that you didn't come to church to get a geography lesson, but it might help as we try to understand at least what the way I want to use this text. Um, I think if you know anything about Israel, the eastern border of Israel is the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs north to south, and the eastern border of Israel is uh, the Jordan River. Israel proper really lies to the west of the Jordan. But when Israel came up out of Egypt, they came up on the east side of of the Jordan River, and two of the tribes, and two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, decided that they wanted to stay on the east side of of, um, of the Jordan River, which they were granted permission to do. But then, of course, they crossed the Jordan River. They had the big battle at Jericho. And, and Israel proper, at least certainly today, uh, the eastern border of Israel is the Jordan River. Now, uh, all this land allotment business that we've been talking about for several weeks in the, in the book of Joshua, it started in chapter 14. It started, um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's taken us six chapters to get this land allotment thing done. And um, uh, there were two and a half that were on the eastern side of the Jordan. But since that time, only two and a half others had had occupied their land. Judah, Ephraim, and the other half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, here we go. Guys, if my math is right, two and a half plus two and a half equals five. And uh, there were 12 tribes. And, uh, so five from twelve, again, if I'm, if I'm thinking right here, that leaves seven. Seven tribes have not yet taken what God had given to them. And that's what's mentioned here in, in the, in the second verse of, uh, of chapter 18. Seven tribes are, are standing around, uh, staring at Joshua, twiddling their thumbs. You know, what do you say about people like that? I mean, um, you know what, you know what they remind me of? They, they remind me of my children when they were young and out of school in the summertime. You know, they get up every morning and they'd look at me and Susie and they'd say, um, so what are y'all going to do to entertain us today? 
I mean, uh, I mean, it's your job to make me happy. So, uh, you know, get, get, get started, you know? Um, and, and, and here we've got seven tribes staring at Joshua saying, you know, I don't know, what do we do now? You know, and, and, um, I mean, how do you explain that kind of lack of motivation? Where's the fire in their belly? I mean, there's, uh, they're, they're, they're stuck. They're, they're not moving forward. And, and you'll notice later in the text that I didn't read that it was Joshua that had to come up with a plan to get them moving. How do you explain that? Well, guys, that's what I want to try to do this morning is, is, is kind of analyze that a bit. Um, because I think there's an insight in there for us. Um, call it a piece of Christian psychology, if you will. But uh, if we can understand what 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 their problem is, then I, I think we can better understand some of. I think we can better understand ourselves. So I want to do that under three headings. I, I want to. My, my three points are being stuck, um, getting unstuck, and examples of of unstuck living. That's what we're going to look at this text under those three headings. So here we go. Gang, there is much land that still belongs to Israel that has not yet been occupied. It's not yet been enjoyed. In fact, seven tribes worth of land is still out there. And um, although Israel owns it, it has not yet been occupied. Oh, oh, it's theirs, all right. But they hadn't taken charge of it. Why, there are some vineyards, there's some orchards and there's some little fishing lakes, nice little fishing lakes out there. And there's some fertile soil and there's some timber. It all belongs to Israel. But enjoying it was out of the question. Why? Because the enemies still had it. And interestingly, in the text, if you look at verse 1, it says that the enemy had been subdued. By the way, this is an aside, but the Hebrew word that is translated subdued there is an interesting Hebrew word, kabosh. You know, we use that word in the English language. Kabosh, put the kabosh, I mean the grizzlies put the kabosh on the spurs on on, uh, Friday night. Well, that comes from a Hebrew word. But what it's saying here is that the enemy is kiboshed. The enemy is subdued. Never in the, never were they in better shape to finish this job of occupying the land that they had been given because the backbone of Canaanite resistance had been broken. Uh, and yet, seven tribes are stuck. They're not going anywhere. These seven tribes needed to, to nail down that land, to go permanently occupy, to take charge of it. But they're letting this opportunity slip away. And they are living far below what God had intended them. Living a life far below the one that God intended for them. And so a frustrated Joshua, <clears throat> uh, in verse 3, looks at him and says, What's up with you people? I mean, what's the matter with you? How long uh, will you put off going in to take possession of the land? W- what is the matter with you people? 
Are they lazy? Are they slackers? Are they triflers? Uh, just unmotivated? What's, what's, what, how are we to explain their, their lack of progress? You know, it's, it's almost like you're dealing with children. What's the matter with them? Well, it's hard to say. It, it could be laziness. It could be uh, indifference. It could be unbelief. But this much is sure, ladies and gentlemen, they're stuck. They're not going anywhere. You know, it seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that vast numbers of professing Christians are in a similar predicament to these seven tribes. They're saved people. They're sons and daughters of the living God. But they're going nowhere, spiritually. They're stuck. And their enemy has been subdued. The, the backbone of satanic opposition, opposition has been broken. And yet, there are things that should be ours, but aren't. And things that aren't or shouldn't be ours that are. Um, how about this? Shame and guilt. You know, um, those ought not be ours. Or um, overpowering temptation or excessive worry. Those are ours, but shouldn't be. Spiritual people who don't look very spiritual at all. Our spiritual inheritance unenjoyed and we're stuck. And not only that, we're a tad, we're a tad bit disillusioned. And we are sitting ducks for anything that's titillating. You know, maybe even an affair. The spiritual malaise has kind of settled down upon our souls. And we realize... I'm not going anywhere spiritually. I'm stuck. Is that you? I mean, have you seen much progress in the advance of your soul lately? Or not so lately? You making any progress, are you? Oh, no, you're not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, then listen up. Because there's some solutions that you need to listen to. How do you get unstuck? How do you get back in the game spiritually, huh? Well, guys, here's the short answer. The short answer is that all of our problems ultimately are theological. Now, you knew I was going to say that, but... um, All of our problems stem from not knowing who God is, from not seeing who he is, or perhaps just forgetting for the moment what he said to us. 
Let's take this thing of shame. So, um, so you blew it big time in the past, did you? I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry you did. But are you then destined to live the rest of your life with a sense of worthlessness and defeat and withdrawal? That's called shame, ladies and gentlemen. And not only to add to the problem, we, we, um, we try to, um, um, go to extremes to artificially import some kind of worth when in fact God in Christ has already given us that. Have you forgotten the mercy of God? Have you forgotten the love of God for sinners? Let's take this guilt thing. Um, we, we live, you know, there's such a thing as true guilt, but I'm talking about the false variety. Um, we live with an unnecessary burden of guilt and Satan hammers us with it because of stuff that we did in the past. And, um, I, I, wa- I wonder, I- I, have you lost touch with the it is finished part of the gospel? Have you forgotten that part? And then, of course, there's this overpowering temptation. And, and, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's one of, it's a marvel. Why can't we Christians, why can't we kick ungodly habits? Hmm? Have we forgotten the, the holiness of God? Have we forgotten the omniscience, the omnipresence of God? How about excessive worry? Um, and call it fear, if you like. And, and I, I mentioned this oh, about four weeks ago. You, you know that is born of arrogance, don't you? It's, it's arrogance because we think that we're, that we know how our lives ought to really unfold. And we're so afraid that God's not going to get that right. And thus we worry. We're afraid of the future. Did you forget God's sovereignty? Ladies and gentlemen, that's what I mean when I say all of our problems are essentially, ultimately, theological in nature. Because they have to do with us not knowing what God has said to us and what God is like. Now that's the short answer. Here's the long answer. The long answer to the question, how do I get unstuck? Here's the long answer, guys. And and to... um. To understand this, you're going to have to open your Bibles, and you're going to have to find 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that you're going to hear inspired today is the stuff that I read out of the Bible. The rest of it's just Jimmy Young. So you're, you're going to have to figure out whether that's true or false. But this, this is something, ladies and gentlemen, that you have got to get. Because, guys, I don't know how to explain those 12, those seven tribes. Um, maybe, maybe it's laziness. You know, to me, it seems more like unbelief or at least forgetfulness. I think that's what explains those seven tribes who stand there twiddling their thumbs. And and Joshua looks at them and says, listen, fellas, you've got a defeated enemy. And they say, really? I didn't know that. And then he says, don't you um, don't you remember that all that land is yours, by the way, a promise of God? Oh, I don't believe that. 
And because we forgot what God says, we're stuck. You know, um, guys, I'm afraid the people that talk to me um, in, in private, they tell me that a lot. They're a tad disillusioned. They're, um, they're wondering, is that all there is to being a Christian? And then they try to self-medicate with busyness and just schedule yourself until you can't schedule anymore. And then you call that some kind of spiritual life and you know better. Well, guys, you need to see this. And if you had not got a Bible with you, then if you don't own a Bible, sell your shoes and buy one and bring it with you next time. Because here's the part, ladies and gentlemen, that is genius. Look with me at at 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. By the way, there's several passages like this in the the New Testament, but this is just one of them. But uh, it starts like this. His divine, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is called a statement of fact. That's a statement of fact. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that's necessary for life and godliness, God has granted us. That is a statement of a fact. Okay? Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 4 is also a statement of a fact. And the fact is, he has granted us numerous, glorious, wonderful promises so that we might become partakers of this, of this spiritual maturity. Those are statements of fact, ladies and gentlemen. We call those indicatives. You know what an indicative sentence is? An indicative sentence is a statement of a fact. This is an indicative. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen. Look at what Peter does next. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, and self-control, self-control, etc., etc., Do you see what Peter is doing, ladies and gentlemen? He says, God has done this, God has done this. And in light of the things that God has done, make every effort. My obedience to his commands, the commands of the scripture, grow out of My knowledge of what he has said and what he has promised. I've granted you everything for life and godliness. I've made all these promises. And for this very reason, get going.
that effort, ladies and gentlemen. To add virtue to knowledge and, and self-control to virtue and all that. Grows out of my awareness of gospel indicatives. Simple statements of fact that, and promises that God has made me. He's made it everything necessary for life and godliness. He's made me all these promises for this very reason. In light of all of that, I get moving. Ladies and gentlemen, if you perform the imperatives of the New Testament, divorced from the indicatives, you will end up stuck and disillusioned every time. Oh, but Dr. Young, I go to three Bible studies a week. I'm glad you do. But it's the indicatives. It's the statements of fact. It's the promises that he's made us that compels us. That drives us, that motivates us, that inspires us, that empowers us. Knowing what he has provided, I get going. Effort on the part of the Christian flows out of the promises that God has made us, guys. And once those promises are forgotten or ignored, progress slows or perhaps even stops. To a considerable degree, ladies and gentlemen, our peace and joy and prosperity as believers is regulated by the use which we make of God's promises. That's how you get unstuck. Now, let me show you why I threw this 1949 and 50 in there to our text this morning. Because what you get there is an example of everything that I'm saying. Joshua and his buddy Caleb are two examples of lives that were lived, lived unstuck. That is... Unstuck living is illustrated in the lives of Joshua and Caleb. Now, guys, uh, this all started 40 years ago, way back in Numbers 13. And I, and I hope that you can find that real quick. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book in the, in the Bible. If you can find the, um, Numbers 13 real, real fast. It all started for these two 40 years prior to this Joshua book. You remember, it was a, it was a defining moment for both of them. That's when God comes to Moses and says, send out 12 spies and to spy out the land. They're in Kadesh Barnea. They're 11 miles away from the promised land. Send out 12 spies and the 12 spies come back, you know, and 10 of them say, don't go. Two of them say, go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, look at your text. Verse one, 13, one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. There's the indicative. There's the promise, ladies and gentlemen. Go tell them to spy out a land which I'm giving them. Twelve go out, ten come back and say, we can't go. But look at verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy, for we are well able to overcome it. There's a man whose life is determined by what God has promised him. Based on the indicative, the promise of 13.2, Caleb says, hey, y'all, let's go. Because he plotted out his life based on what God had said to him. And then we come 40 years later to the book of Joshua. And Joshua and Caleb are still living like that. You know, guys, the um, the allotting of all this land, of the promised land to the 12 tribes, started back in chapter 14 with Caleb. Caleb getting his. It ends in chapter 19, 49 and 50, with Joshua getting his. Those two stories are marvelously exemplary. Everything in the in between was a mess. It is riddled with problems. But the two guys who came back and banked their life on the things that God had said to them. They're moving on. They were a minority of two in Numbers 13. And they are a minority of two in Joshua 19. The majority prevailed. Which once again is a standing witness to the fact that more often than not, the majority is neither right nor faithful. I'm not trying to talk about the beauty of being in a minority. I'm talking to you about the fact of being in a minority. You know, guys, 40 years ago, back in that Numbers 13, 14 event, God said something else by way of promise back then. He said, um, because Israel rebelled, at my promise to go take the land that I had given them. Not a one of them. Not a one of them except Joshua and Caleb are going to enter this promised land. And here we are 40 years later. And they're all dead. Except Joshua and Caleb. God had fulfilled his promises once again. And yet their, their, their unbelief 
of Numbers, the, the unbelief of Numbers 13 lives on in their prodigy in these seven tribes. Healthy, growing, confident, promise-driven faith was the minority position in Numbers 13. It was the minority position in Joshua 19. And I dare say, it is the minority position today. But God is still keeping his promises. My brother and sister in Christ, until we are ready to flesh out 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5, don't expect another Bible study or another discipleship program to help you much. I'm not saying that Bible study and discipleship programs are bad. We offer several such opportunities here at Gracie Van. But they won't produce Joshua's and Caleb's. In fact, no church program can produce that. And nor should any program be expected to produce that. I can't make you believe the promise, the promises that Peter alludes to. I can't convince you that the kibosh has been put on our enemy. I can't believe God for you, and you can't believe God for me. But gang, I can assure you, until we do believe God and his promises, we are stuck you feel that? I mean, in your own Christian experience, you feel like you're stuck. Then it's your fault. And ladies and gentlemen, here's the solution. We all go ask God to forgive us. And then we ask him to grant us grace to believe gospel indicatives. Indicatives about who we are in Christ. And and indicatives about what has been done for us by Christ. And then get off your knees and let the beauty of the gospel drive you to new effort. But don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, effort, trying harder, divorced from gospel indicatives, is defeating, it's disillusioning, it is lifeless. And it is prideful moralism. You know, I've, I've said this a lot. 
But we go back to what Martin Luther said. He said, preach the gospel to yourself. You know, I added this 1949 and 50 to my text this morning because I thought it was just such a nice little end note to the whole story of land allotment. And, and though you cannot, the notes are, are invisible in the text. It's really music. And it goes like this. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And my brother and sister in Christ, when we come to the place when we believe that, We'll make some progress. My friend, if you're here this morning and you have not yet seen the beauty of Jesus Christ, not yet redeemed, here's a promise for you to start with. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God has always kept that promise. And he always will. Our Father, I pray that you will forgive us as your people that we um, we have chosen to self-medicate in ways that have prevented us from laying hold of the promises that are ours, the provisions that you've made, the definitions that you have given us. And so we continue to languish because of because of unbelieving unbelieving living father would you uh, would you grant us grace fresh supplies of grace that we might believe the promises that you've made that we might lay hold of all the provisions that are ours and get back to the journey of heading towards spiritual maturity and concluding in heaven. Lord, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would, um, would you do something by the power of the Holy Spirit that will open their eyes to see the great beauty of Christ and Him crucified, this one that the grave could not keep, the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding, for the weak and the frail folk like me. Would you, uh, would you grow us all up, Lord, for Jesus' sake? We ask it in his name.